Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. There's no doubt that Shaw knew Ferry. There's no doubt that Shaw knew Bannister. There's no doubt that Shaw was associated with Oswald. Hey there, I'm hard at work on another edition of Inner Sanctum, my free monthly newsletter. Inner Sanctum features my monthly brief, a column of my thoughts and opinions on what's happening in the world. It features a spotlight on a past guest, a look ahead to an upcoming episode of my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show. It features a look at this month in conspiracy and UFO history and my Conspiracy Unlimited podcast episode pick of the month and so much more. To get your free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum, delivered to your email inbox, just go to my website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca. Scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on Inner Sanctum and register. It's fast, easy, and again, absolutely free. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. If you're like me and you're too young to remember the actual Kennedy assassination, then Oliver Stone's film JFK probably has informed much of what you know and believe about what actually transpired in Dallas in 1963. And it's also quite likely then that your introduction to Jim Garrison the crusading New Orleans district attorney who holds the distinction of being the only man to, to ever prosecute anyone in the assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, it's likely your introduction to Garrison was provided by the actor Kevin Costner, who portrayed Garrison in Stone's JFK film. So tonight, we're going to take a look at the life and times of Jim Garrison, who is simultaneously revered as a true American hero and truth seeker by those who do not subscribe to the Warren Commission or reviled as a reckless crackpot by those who do. And here to help us separate wheat from chaff, fact from fiction, is assassination researcher James D. Eugenio. He's the author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case, and the just-released Reclaiming Parkland, Tom Hanks, Vincent Bugliosi, and the JFK assassination in the new Hollywood. James D. Eugenio, welcome once again. How are you, my friend? Fine. Let me ask you, first of all, I found it interesting uh, that uh, Costner, Kevin Costner, was selected to play uh, Jim Garrison. I, I want to get your your thoughts. I mean, uh, here we are. I guess it's been, this is about the 20th anniversary, I think, of, of, uh, of JFK. And I always found... No, actually, it's no? 22 years. It's 22 years now, 1991 that came out. But it's... Right. I always found Costner to be an interesting choice by Stone. But what, what do you... First of all, before we get into Garrison's life, what did you make of Costner's portrayal of Garrison? Was it accurate? Well, let's put it this way. If I could have picked any actor to play Jim Garrison, it probably wouldn't be Kevin Costner. You know, he was really hot at the time. And, you know, he helped get the picture made. But as far as him portraying Jim Garrison, Zach Sklar, the co-writer of the screenplay, actually wanted John Boyd 
But Voight wasn't as big of a star as Costner at that time. And I think John Voight would have been really good, you know, because I, I think, you know, John Voight is a much more resourceful and subtle actor than Costner. That long speech at the end, yes, uh, which I think Voight could have done a better job with that speech. I don't think Kevin was as up to that, you know, was, was up to delivering a very long soliloquy like that. But I will say this about Costner. Ever since he's done that movie, he has been completely into this whole JFK stuff. He's really interested in this stuff. He is now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, ever since he did that movie. That's interesting, because I read an interview with him once. This is going back a few years, so maybe he's changed his mind on a number of things. But at one time, Costner said that if he had sat on that jury, he would have voted, in, in terms of uh, you know Clay Shaw, he would have voted not guilty. But I guess over the course of uh, these 21 years, uh, and much has come out, maybe he well, even read well, Destiny. Well, wait a betray- second, Richard. I, I, think, I think what he's trying to say is that, you know, because of all the things that were against Garrison, right. the evidence that he produced in that courtroom probably wasn't enough to convict the guy. I mean, I probably would have voted Clay Shaw not guilty. Oh, really? That's know? interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, because of the, of the, of the evidence. Now... Let me say this. Today, I think Shaw's guilty of sin. Okay? I mean, there's, I don't think there's any question about it today. You know, and the lie about the lies about Clay Shaw have piled up to a mountain size. You know, the cover-up that went on about him. But all I'm saying is, as far as what was presented in court, I probably would have voted him not guilty. Now, as we know, the two substitute members listened to the evidence, and they actually said he was guilty. Although the people on the actual jury didn't see it that way. Now, you got to understand, first of all, because Garrison was so sick, he did not conduct most of the trial. I think he only, was only there for about three witnesses, delivered the opening, and delivered one of the summations. Nobody knew the evidence that was in Garrison's files like he did. You know, and people have made up all these stories about why Garrison wasn't there, but I found out because of a letter he wrote to one of the people who followed his trial that he was really ill. He had a, this historic back condition, which was really acting up at the time, and he had the Hong Kong flu at the same time he had this horrible back condition. So that's why he wasn't there a lot of the time. The other problem was, of course, so many of the subpoenas he had issued came back empty-handed. So a lot of the witnesses that he wanted to get there weren't there. And then thirdly, the sabotage of the trial, you know, because the FBI and the CIA were monitoring the trial day and night, and the Justice Department. In my book, Destiny Betrayed, I talk about the earthquake that went off in Washington when Pierre Fink testified. And this is another thing. The media control of the trial was also very important. One of the things that I discovered is that a guy named James Phelan, who was writing for the Saturday Evening Post, invited all the people, the media in town, to go ahead. He had rented the house, and they would go there every evening after trial. He would then bring out an easel and a chalk, a piece of chalk, and essentially wrap out what the next day's story was going to be. I know this because I talked to one of the guys who was covering the trial. 
Now, Phelan did not actually cover the trial himself, but he was covering it by, you know, he was being set up at this house, probably by the FBI, to go ahead and... Now, when Fink testified, that testimony should have been on the front page of every store, every newspaper in America. Explain who Peter Fink is, or what? Okay, Pierre Fink was one of the three autopsy pathologists who was there at Bethesda that night, okay? And he was actually one of the witnesses to what is probably the worst autopsy in history of America, okay? The autopsy that went to President John F. Kennedy was an utter and complete disgrace, you know? And you can, you can start almost anywhere you want to start at of how bad it was. But just to give you one example, allegedly there were two wounds in President Kennedy, one in the back one in the, and one in the skull. In any kind of homicide, what you're supposed to do if you're an autopsy doctor is you're supposed to dissect those wounds. That is, you go ahead and stick you know, a metal probe through and have it come out the other end, all right? And then you trace it, okay, the, the track of the wound, all right, to find directionality and if the wound went through and through. As far as a, one a bullet that hits the skull, what you have to do there is section off the brain so that you can trace the bullet path through the brain, okay? Now, in this particular case, the murder of President Kennedy, the, probably the most important murder case in the whole 20th century in this country, all right? Neither one of those was done. Neither wound was dissected. So therefore, to this day, we don't know if the wounds were through and through wounds, that if they penetrated all the way through, or number two, from what direction they came from. There's a debate about this, you know, 50 years later. That's how bad that autopsy was. Well, one of the things that Garrison was determined to air during a trial was why was the wound in the back not dissected? All right? Now, Fink did not want to answer that question because I, I actually was one of the very few people to actually have the transcript of that. Okay? And I detailed that whole thing in my book, Destiny Betrayed. And so he refused to answer the question. The DA, the assistant DA, Alvin Oser, had to repeat the question eight times. Finally, he had to go to the judge, all right? And the judge directed Fink to answer the question. And Fink finally answered the question. And he said, because the military brass in the gallery interfered with the autopsy. In other words, for the first time, the trial of Clay Shaw was in 1969. President Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. Six years after the fact, the American public finally found out that the military brass in the gallery was controlling and running the autopsy of President Kennedy. That should have been on the front banner headline of the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. And, if, and it should have been the lead story in the nightly news, NBC, ABC, and CBS. Of course, it was not. 
All right. I actually explained why there was no dissection in the back one. Let's do a little bit of uh, a chronology uh, here, uh, Jim. Take us back to, I guess, late 66, when Garrison, again then a New Orleans district attorney, began to investigate the assassination, you know, leading up to the arrest of, of Clay Shaw in 69. But take us back to 66 and, and Jack Martin and that whole, uh, uh, you know, the David Ferry and so forth. Six. It actually started in 63. Okay, when uh, the lead came into Herm Coleman from Jack Martin, that Oswald was a friend of David Ferry's, okay? Because what had happened that afternoon, of course, as everybody famously knows, is watch JFK, which is going to be re-released this week. Um, Bannister, Guy Bannister, and Martin had an altercation at, after they went to back to get Bannister's office after drinking at the Catch and Jammer bar that afternoon. All right, and what seems to have happened is through the declassified files of DRB is that is that Martin actually was trying to get at Bannister's Oswald file, okay, that afternoon, okay, which, of course, Bannister had because Oswald was at 544 Camp Street, okay, that summer of 1963. And so Bannister essentially pistol-whipped uh, Martin, you know. And if Delphine Roberts would not have intervened, you know, Bannister might have really, really, you know, hurt Martin. So what happened is that Martin started making a series of phone calls uh, trying to tell people about what was really happening in Guy Bannister's office that summer with Oswald, Ferry, um, you know, Kerry uh, Thornley, uh, Sergio Acacia-Smith, all the Cuban exiles, etc. One of the calls went to Garrison's office, and Garrison called in Ferry for questioning. All right? Now, through the declassified files, we also know something else was going on at this time. Ferry was trying to separate himself from Oswald. He was making various phone calls, okay, you know, uh, trying to find the famous cap picture, Civil Air Patrol picture, so that the authorities wouldn't get it. Trying to find if anybody knew that Oswald would use his library card that summer, okay? You know, uh, now, when Garrison called him for questioning, he didn't find his answers were credible, and so he turned him over to the FBI. They interviewed him. His FBI interview is prima facie evidence that J. Edgar Hoover didn't give a damn about who killed President Kennedy because Ferry lied his head off in that affidavit. All right? He said, for example, he never knew Oswald. He said he never had uh, never been able to use a telescopic rifle. He said he never even never would know how to use a telescopic rifle. This guy was a trainer for the Bay of Pigs and Mongoose, all right? And so that's where the story stood after the FBI dismissed Ferry. All right. Then later on, Garrison got drawn into the case again in late 1966 on a plane flight with Russell Long, the senator from Louisiana, you know, and rekindled his interest, you know, by telling him he didn't think the Warren Commission did a very good job. So Garrison ordered the 26 volumes, started to read them, and it reopened the case. And that's how it got started again. Now, 
Ferry, of course, one of the, was one of his early persons of interest. Okay, to this day, nobody really knows how Ferry died. Okay, but he did in February of 1967, just as the public was learning about Garrison's investigation after it was exposed by the local papers. So Garrison decided to move against a second suspect he had, a local businessman and CIA agent, Clay Shaw. All right. He indicted Shaw. There was also a preliminary hearing. And at this point, when he indicted Shaw and he successfully got the preliminary hearing, all hell now began to break loose. Okay, because it's very clear from the declassified files that Washington did not want Garrison to succeed. And so in my book, Destiny Betrayed, and to a lesser extent in Reclaiming Parkland, I detail this incredible apparatus that was set up to make sure that Garrison would not succeed. And without the ARB declassified files, the Assassination Record Review Board, we would have never found out this stuff, okay, because it went beyond what I even thought it was, okay, what I even thought. For example, NBC Network, all right, um, actually cooperated with the work of producer Walter Sheridan, you know, in the, um, in the, the smeared the hatchet job they did, the NBC white paper on Garrison. Uh, Sheridan had all kinds of money. And the CIA was helping them, okay, in to produce that program, which was originally intended to be in two parts. I didn't know that either, all right? Um, the CIA had placed agents inside of Garrison's office at a much earlier stage than I thought they had. This goes all the way back to the, the end of 1966, you know, when very few people even knew that Garrison had an investigation. Alan Dulles actually hired one of these guys, Gordon Novell, to electronically wire Garrison's office. All right? When Garrison would not give up, even after the NBC hit piece was broadcast, the CIA set up, set up a special office at Langley called the Garrison Group. All right? About six or seven very high officials, including Richard Allen's assistant, Thomas Karamasenis, you know, was sat in. We have the paper on four meetings, okay? Now, what I believe happened after the fourth meeting is that those strategy sessions then went into secret, okay? They went, uh, because at one of the meetings, uh, Mark, Victor Marchetti said, Towns directed people to talk about things that they were going to do off the record, all right? And so... The CIA even interfaced with local judges to see that Garrison's subpoenas would not be honored. Okay? We have that in declassified documents now. CIA lawyers actually going to the chambers of the judges to be sure that, say, for example, Alan Dulles is not served with a subpoena. All right? Garrison's office was wired for sound by both the CIA and the FBI. Okay, and then, of course, the, there were transcripts made, you know, of the surveillance. The FBI actually put a physical surveillance on Garrison, and they tapped his phone, all right? You know, the media 
took part in this also. You have pseudo-reporters who are actually intelligence agents, like James Phelan and Hugh Ainsworth, uh, began to take part in this effort. Hugh Ainsworth essentially worked for the FBI, the CIA, and the White House to obstruct Garrison's investigation. And through his contacts, his double agents in the office, and the contacts of local newspapers, you know, he actually went ahead and tried to bribe certain witnesses, okay, not to cooperate with Garrison, you know. I could go on and on. I mean, the, the stuff we found out about how intent Washington was to thwart this guy is absolutely astounding. And it's one of the most fascinating things about these new files. Of course, you won't see it on TV this week. There's like 15 shows coming out about um, Kennedy and his assassination, but you won't see anything from these new declassified files. All right? So people like you are the only people in your audience, only people who know about it. Well, let, let's talk about some of the, the, uh, the key witnesses. Uh, uh, now, let's go back to Perry Russo. Who was okay. who was Perry Russo and and uh, you know what was this conversation exactly that he supposedly overheard at a, at a party? All right, Russo had been a friend of Ferry's uh, for quite a long time. All right, and then when Russo lived, I think uh, near Baton Rouge, which is uh, north uh, northwest of New Orleans. So when he read about Ferry, you know, being indicted by Garrison. He wrote a letter to Garrison, and then Garrison sent one of his DAs up there, under Chambra, to interview Perry Russo. And Russo told him about this talk that he witnessed one night at Perry's apartment. All right? Um, there, it started off with several Cubans being there and some friends. Then as it winnowed out, the discussion went to... Um, an assassination plot against uh, President Kennedy. All right. So Russo had him ID some photos. All right. And so it turned out that Oswald was there, Perry was there, and a guy who he called Bertrand was there. All right. So Shamba wanted to come in and and take um, sodium pentothal, which is true serum and uh, a hypnosis session. And so that's how they tested his testimony. All right, now, this was something I did a lot of work on in Destiny Betrayed, the second edition, because this is one of the things that people like Phelan used to try and discredit Garrison. That Russo was using sodium pentothal on, on a key witness. So no, no, Garrison was using sodium pentothal. Right. On, you know, and yeah. that somehow this was... Dr- Russo's testimony was not given freely. It was, it was, uh, coerced into him. Right. Right. And so, well, okay, this is very easily dispellable today. Okay. First of all, I found the guy who actually drove up to Baton Rouge to talk to Russo. A guy nobody tracked down before. A guy named Matt Heron. Matt Heron was a photographer for the Saturday Evening Post. All right. Now, if you read what Phelan says about this in Kirkwood's book, American Grotesque, you'll see that, according to Phelan, Russo denied that he mentioned Shaw's name in Baton Rouge when he first approached him, all right, and that he uh, he wanted Matt Heron to be his witness if he ever had testified about this, 
Well, I said, well, wait, wait a second. Why don't I track down Matt Heron and see what he has to say about this? So I tracked him down. I talked to him on two occasions. I told him. I asked him, did Russo tell Ewan Phelan, okay, that he mentioned Shaw's name in New Orleans or Baton Rouge? Okay. And he said, well, he said it was in Baton Rouge. He was very strong about this. So in other words, when I, when I discovered that Phelan was lying about something like that, you know, I said, why don't I check out the rest of his story? Well, it turns out that what Phelan and Shaw's lawyers did is they reversed the order of the two hypnosis sessions to make it appear that um, he was being coached. If you read them in the proper order, you know, which I, I had those right out of Garrison's files because I was one of the very few people that was actually allowed to go ahead and copy these. Mayan Garrison, Garrison's son, allowed me and a few friends to copy his files. And so they're, they're, they're very clearly labeled A and B. And if you read them in that order, you'll see that Russo is not coached at all. All right, I've got to take a time out here. When we come back, let's talk about uh, Clem Bertrand, uh, who Russo later pointed out in court was, in fact, Clay Shaw. Who was he and why was he part of this assassination team? Back with more of my conversation with James DiEugenio. Stay with us. Reduce stress and enhance your immune system. ESS-60 from C60 Evo. C60 is the carbon-60 molecule known to deliver more than 172 times the power of vitamin C. 172 times. ESS-60 is the purest form of C60, a known antiviral, antibacterial, and anti-inflammatory remedy that works. ESS-60 neutralizes free radicals from cell metabolization and external toxins to help minimize inflammation and maximize detoxification. Further, people report better sleep, more energy, and renewed mental clarity when they take our ESS-60 organic oil. To order your miracle molecule ESS-60, click on the C60 Evo link in the episode notes for this podcast or go to c60evo.com slash richard hyphen serrett. C- C60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. Buy now and save 10% by using the coupon code EVRS at checkout. Again, use the coupon code EVRS at checkout. The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again. I don't know what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. James DiEugenio stays with us, the author of Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Jim Garrison case, and as we delve into the life and times of famed district attorney, New Orleans district attorney, James Garrison, uh, who is uh, the only man to ever have prosecuted anyone for in the uh, for the assassination of John F. Kennedy? And of course, uh, the person that was arrested and tried was uh, a New Orleans businessman by the name of Clay Shaw, who had uh, prior to that been identified as uh, Clay Bertrand or Clem Bertrand. Uh, we were discussing one of the key witnesses, Perry Russo, who was uh, the individual who said that he uh, attended a party. Uh, where Clem Bertrand was in attendance, David Ferry was in attendance, and of course uh, uh, Oswald, who was introduced to Russo, I, I believe, as Leon Oswald. Right, it, it wasn't Oswald. In my book, In Destiny Betrayed, 
I came to the conclusion that it, that was not the real Oswald, that there actually was a Leon Oswald, because he's mentioned by several witnesses. So I came to the conclusion in my book that that was not really Lee Harvey Oswald. That was just Leon Oswald, who was one of the Oswald's doubles that was being used up in, you know, in the run-up to the assassination. Okay. Now, of course, Ferry is key because Ferry uh, can, can connect the dots between Oswald and, and Bannister. Ferry worked with right. Bannister, but also Ferry spent time with Oswald uh, in the uh, the Civil Air Patrol uh, back in the late mid to late 50s, I guess. So mm-hmm. Ferry connects the dots between Oswald and Bannister. Ferry, though, is dead by 1967. Bannister is dead in 1964, I think, which leaves only... Yeah. This Clem Bertrand, right. later identified as Clay Shaw. So tell us, let's delve into into the into the life of of this Clem Bertrand, mm-hmm. Clay Shaw. Okay. Who was he? Well, Shaw is a very interesting kind of a complex figure. Um, he um, returned from the war, okay, working on in some intelligence units, okay, during the war, and then he began to. Since he was homosexual, he began to befriend some of the homosexual um, upper-class people in New Orleans at the time, one of which was Ted Brandt, uh, who was a bank owner. And Ted Brandt kind of got him into um, the whole international house, international trademark scene that was part of New Orleans because New Orleans was, of course, the gateway in shipping to South America, all right? And it's at that time he becomes of interest to the Central Intelligence Agency, all right? And so once he enters into being the director of the International Trademark, okay, uh, he begins to be a very important agent to the CIA, all right? Now, the CIA and the House Select Committee have always always gave this baloney out about Shaw was only part of this businessman's program in which we interviewed at random certain people. Well, that turned out to be a bunch of baloney, all right? Uh, recently declassified at the National Archives was a document saying that Shaw was a very highly paid contract source for the CIA. In other words, he was briefed before he went on his travels into Central and South America. He was paid handsome fees. For all intents and purposes, Shaw was a contract agent of the CIA, okay, which is something that he always denied, okay? He always denied, all right? And so and other people who, you know, have to, who, you know, tried to defend him and not garrison, you know, always you know, try to deny that fact. Well, now it's a fact, all right, because we have the paper on this, all right? And Shaw was also a part of something called QK Enchant, which is a, a, a project, a CIA project, which, if you can believe it, we still don't know what his clearance entailed in that. But we do know that Howard Hunt also had that clearance, QK Enchant. So... For all intents and purposes, uh, Clay Shaw was a very important CIA agent, as well as being the director of this international trade line. Now, there's no doubt today 
there's absolutely no doubt today that Shaw lied his head off about who he knew and who he circulated with in New Orleans in the lead-up to the Kennedy assassination, all right? There's no doubt that Shaw knew Ferry. There's no doubt that Shaw knew Bannister. There's no doubt that Shaw was associated with Oswald, okay? Simply because we know now about the whole Clinton-Jackson incident that took place in August of 1963 in the two small hamlets about 90 minutes north of New Orleans. Now, you were mentioning the... um the, uh, I guess there were a total of about uh, eight witnesses from Jackson and Clinton, Louisiana. These are two adjacent rural towns about 120 miles north of New Orleans. And these witnesses were the ones that testified they saw Clay Shaw. I guess he was uh, driving up there in a black Cadillac to Clinton. And uh, they saw Shaw with Oswald and, and, and Ferry. These are two men, of course, Ferry well, and Oswald. There many more than eight witnesses. Okay. In fact... Today, you could name over a dozen, and there were probably more than that, okay? But they testified, um, because Shaw adamantly, as you pointed out, Shaw adamantly denied that he knew either Ferry or Oswald, and yet right. these witnesses were saying they saw Shaw in uh, in Clinton, Louisiana, there with was these a two men. There was a picture of the three of them in the car, okay? One of Garrison's investigators actually tracked down a photo. It was not introduced as evidence in the trial because it was taken from a bad angle from a distance. And so when Garrison tried to blow it up, you know, it lost too much resolution. Okay, and they also found out that Oswald had actually signed up to register because at the time that uh, Sean was up there with Ferry and Oswald, unaware of them, there was a voter registration rally for the Congress of Industrial, the Congress of racial equality. So the they were trying to get, um, the ostensible reason was they wanted to get Oswald a job up in the area at this hospital. So one of the people they visited, Reeves Morgan, who was like a local representative, told me he'd have a better shot at getting a job if he registered to vote. So when he registered to vote, unaware to Sean Ferry, Okay, there was this massive voter registration drive. Okay, and so Oswald was seen by literally dozens of witnesses, okay, because they didn't know this was going to happen. And that kind of blew the whole operation, okay, you know, which I believe the intent was unbeknownst to Oswald. They wanted to get him into that hospital because they wanted to shift the files from being an employee to a patient, so that on the day of the assassination, okay, they could say, not only was this guy a commie, he was a crazy commie, okay? But there's very, very few incidents that are better, you know, you know, fortified than this one as time has gone on, all right? I mean, to me, when I first started in this back, God, Back in 1991, in a very serious way, you know, I only I only went to Clinton once. I've been since been there three times, okay. And the thing gets more and more, you know. There's more and more testimony, more and more details come into this. There's no doubt that this thing happened, none at all. And it's one of the most, you know, in my opinion, it's one of the best pieces of evidence of a conspiracy before the fact that we have. In this case.
At what point in the uh, in Garrison's investigation uh, did he believe? And he, of course, you know, later in life he was very outspoken about this. Uh, you know, the famous uh, Playboy interview talking about uh, you know the CIA's role in this. At what time? At what point did Garrison become convinced that the CIA basically ran this operation to kill Kennedy? In the summer of 1967. Okay, uh, because by this time he understood exactly what the measures were taking against him. And he understood just how sophisticated it was, just how strong it was, just how widespread it was. And he came to the conclusion that only something like the CIA, you know, could go ahead and do to him what was happening to him. All right? And also he began to go ahead and connect Oswald and every step of the way he would connect Oswald, almost every single person he connected Oswald to was somehow associated with the Central Intelligence Agency. But now, but let, let me uh, dispel something, okay? Because I think too many people feel that Garrison thought that this was a pure CIA operation. That's not true, okay? Because, you know, I, as, as I read the interviews he gave, he came to believe that it was really a operation between a certain element of the Central Intelligence Agency, the anti-Castro Cuban exiles, and in a small support role, the mob, okay? Because I uncovered an interview that he did in 19, I think it was 1975 or 76, in Harper's, where that's what he, that's what he was telling the writer, or I think it was Dick Russell, all right? And I think there's a lot of people today who would agree, for example, Anthony Summers in his book, Conspiracy, which I think was published in 1981, that is the, the model that he used, okay, you know, that it was a three-sided thing on the operational level between the CIA, the Cuban exiles, and to a lesser extent, the mafia, okay? You think, as I do, what I think, what I believe happened, is before the fact, you had the CIA and the Cubans when Oswald was not killed at the Texas Theater, which I believe was the original plan, okay, when he lived, I believe they called in the mob through Jack Ruby, you know, because the CIA had worked with the mafia on those Castro assassination plots, you know, and they probably got to somebody like McWilly, Louis McWilly, you know, uh, who was a friend of Ruby's, and that's how they got Ruby in to the Dallas police uh, jail to go ahead and wipe out Oswald. And that's where the mafia connection exists, I think. And that's essentially what Garrison thought. Yeah, he, I think he, he was quoted as saying that the CIA couldn't face up to the American people and admit its former employees had conspired mm -hmm. to assassinate the president. So, you know, from the moment Kennedy's heart stopped beating, they had to attempt to sweep the whole conspiracy under the rug. In other words, you know, there was a certain... Uh, a group within the CIA that, you know, the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing, I guess, is what right. he was trying to say there. He wasn't, right. you know, he wasn't implicating the entire agency. He was saying, I guess, sort of a rogue element within the agency. Right. But he, he, he said something else very interesting later in life, and I think that's very, uh, I mean, if he were alive today, and it's, uh, I guess it's been just over 20 years since he passed, uh, he said, I'm afraid, based on my own experience, that fascism will come to America in the name of national security. Boy, yes. did he really nail that one, didn't he? Right. You're, well, you're darn right about that, aren't you? Okay. Fascism will come to America 
in the name of national security. And boy, isn't that isn't that the fact or what? Well, yeah. people talk about uh, uh, Syria as a being a national security state. I think the same applies to the United States. And I'm wondering, you know, is it uh, whether whether 1963, November 22nd, 1963, was was part of that process, a, a coup d'état on this sort of long, slow march towards totalitarianism? Well, I, see, the thing is, if you've ever tried working on this case before the Assassination Record Review Board, you know, when you tried to get documents, one of the things that they would always use to deny them was national security, okay? You know? The thing is, when you finally declassified all these documents, national security had nothing to do with it. It was their security. It was these people in the FBI and the CIA. It was their security they were worried about because they were d- directly involved in the cover-up and the CIA was directly involved in the actual conspiracy. Okay? And so that's what Garrison was saying there. And he was absolutely correct, you know? Because most people agree, as as I do, that the people's, well, you're lucky you live up there in Canada, but people live down here. If you take polls down here, most people believe that this terrible cynicism and skepticism people have about the government began in 1964 with the issuance of the one report. And polls carry, uh, actually do prove that. Because when they, they take, you know, take polls about, you know, do you believe in what your government is telling you? There's a tremendous downward trend from about 1960, which it was it was up like 78 percent. See, I think the last one is 1998 or something, which it was like 19 percent. And if you take a look at the poll, the biggest drop was 1964. Right. I, yeah, the numbers have been pretty consistent in terms of Americans who don't believe the sort of the the Warren Commission essentially the the findings of the no, Warren no, Commission no. in but their se- government. Right, yeah, but there's another the poll. The Warren Commission, that's a different one. Okay, the latest polls I've seen on that one, it's about 75% yes, yes. of the public does not believe the what the Warren Commission said about Oswald. Exactly. And guess what? They're right. <laughs> Do you think, had, had uh, Garrison had access to the documents that you, know, that you now have had access to, would that have been an open and shut case against Clay Shaw? I think so. In fact, the CIA thought so. Because when they had the first meeting of the Garrison Group in September of 1967, you know, one of the guys who was part of it, Ray Roca, who was James Angleton's right-hand man, said words of the effect, if Garrison is allowed to proceed as he's doing, Shaw will be convicted. And we know what happened right after that meeting. The CIA ratcheted up all the interference and all the obstruction uh, that they were going to give him. And that's why Shaw was not convicted. What uh, what ultimately happened to Clay Shaw? Well, after Shaw was acquitted, um, he filed a lawsuit uh, against Garrison, a civil suit against Garrison. Okay, and what happened is Shaw passed away, I believe, in 1975. If you can believe it. His lawyer Ed Wegman tried to continue the lawsuit. And it had to go all the way up to the Supreme Court to actually get it thrown out. Okay. Shaw retired, uh, right after the trial. Okay. And he lived out his, uh, the five or six years of his life down there in New Orleans. Okay. Quietly, rather quietly. Do you think he was sort of taken care of, if you know what I mean? 
Do I think he was what? Well, do you think he, they he was gotten rid of? Oh no, I, I I I you know I used to entertain thoughts about that, but that's nothing I can prove to any. Uh, that's nothing. That would be nothing more than speculation on my part. All right. Well, uh, what do you think? I guess in conclusion, here we are, the 50th uh, anniversary quickly coming our way. Uh, if Garrison were still alive, what do you think he would uh, make of this continued uh, interest in, in this case? Well, Garrison always believed that um, what had happened was one of the worst things that's ever happened in the United States. You know, that uh, in the, I think in the last few moments of The Tonight Show, when he was on with Johnny Carson, that disgraceful program, um, he said words of the effect, you know, you know, we, we, we can't continue to deny what happened to President Kennedy. If we continue to deny what happened to President Kennedy, the America as we know it will disappear and a new state will come and take over. Well, and I, I think it was perfectly right. You know, this whole, what this has done to the social fabric of this country, the United States, has been one of the worst things that's happened in the last 50 years. And it's still, you know, I mean, it's still, you know, doing this damage to this country. And because the American people will not face up to it. And the media will not face up to it. All right, James, really appreciate it. Appreciate your time once again. Okay, thank you, Richard. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats, we need. We need constant petting. <laughs>